Well, good morning to you. It is good to, to see all of you. Thank you for joining us for our time of worship today. My name is Daniel Renstrom. I'm the worship pastor here um, at, at Brook Hills. And we are at the end of a four-week series that we have been in called Inklings, How the Old Testament Points Us to Jesus. And we probably should have put maybe like a, a big spoiler alert warning over the whole sermon series because we've maybe been ruining the plot of the Bible for you if you didn't know it, all right? And here it is, that Jesus is all over the pages of the Bible. <laughs> Old and New Testament, he's all over the Bible. And here's why that's so important for us, why this sermon series is important, why it's important for you, because seeing Jesus is the most important pursuit of your life. Seeing Jesus is way more important than, than finding a, a husband or a wife or a career or a house or anything like that. Seeing Jesus is the most important pursuit of your life. And because of that, we wanna spend time looking at the word. Today, we're gonna to be looking at Isaiah 35, how we see Jesus in Isaiah 35. So if you will, go ahead and turn there. And our first fill in the blank that we're gonna, we're gonna fill in, it's gonna kind of send us where we're going today is this, the promise of salvation is that Jesus, that we're with Jesus forever, but also with him now. The promise of salvation is this, that we're with Jesus forever, but also we're with him now. You know, when we believe that a person or a thing is able to make good on a promise that they make to us, that belief is able to sustain us even when we don't have that promised thing in hand. And the greater the promise, right, the more willing we are to sacrifice something to get that reward, to get that thing that has been promised to us. You know, some of you endured really difficult classes and paid a ton of money so that you would get a piece of paper that said you graduated, so you would have the reward of a career or a job unless you got a history degree, and then you're just out of luck, right? No job for you. Um, I'm just joking. Some of you wake up really in the early in the morning every single day, and, and the sacrifice of being tired or being sore by working out does not bother you because the reward of what you get is worth it to you. You love that. When Danielle and I moved to Durham, North Carolina uh, years ago, the church uh, that we were gonna go and be a part of was in downtown Durham, but housing there was really expensive. And so it was difficult to find a house close in close proximity to the church. But our realtor found one and said, I wanna take you to go see this house. We should have known. That was like our first clue. This is not a good idea, right? So we walk in, as soon as the door opens, the smell of this house just knocks both of us over. So the backstory is this, that uh, the, the owner of the house um, had a bunch of cats and she allowed all of the cats to go to the bathroom wherever they wanted to in the house. And so every, everybody that came to look at this house just went in and then turned right around, right? And so we were like the only idiots, like, okay, we'll take it, you know? And so we. We walk in and we're gagging from the smell, 
But our realtor, he starts laughing and he says this to us. You know what? The smell of cat pee is the smell of affordability. (laughs) And he was right, all right? There was affordable housing. The reward of affordable housing was worth the smell of cat pee that we kind of eventually got out, all right? It outweighed the smell. Isaiah 35 is all about promises. And these promises are meant to operate in in the same way. They're calling us to look towards this significant, weighty reward so that we're gonna be willing to sacrifice, to take hold of it, to take hold of this reward. Now, the reason that these Uh, these promises were given in the first place was that Israel had a trust problem with the Lord. Every time there was a problem in Israel, with Israel, maybe there was a foreign army coming in or invading army coming in. They went to the most disastrous places to look for help. They went to these mercenary nations hoping that they would help them. But these places, they, weren't, they didn't genuinely care for Israel at all. They would go and bow down to idols made of wood and metal. They were hoping that all of these idols would hear them and help them. And they ultimately ran away from the only one that could really help them. But in the surprising kindness of God, he pursued them with promises. He pursued them with promises. He says this, promises that if they turned from their sin right now, turn to him that he would help them. And promises also about their future because he wanted to say this. He said, I wanna tell you what my character's like. I'm the kind of God who will do these things for you. He wanted them to believe in his character. And Isaiah 35 is one of those future-oriented promises that we're gonna look at today. And here's why you and I need to listen to the promises made in Isaiah 35 because we also need to, to look and believe in, these pro, in the promise-making God. It's important for us to see this because it's going to strengthen our hope in God for what he'll do now and what he'll do in the future. We'll strengthen our hope in God for what he's gonna do now and what he's gonna do in the future. So the first point under the, the first subheading is this, believing the promise-maker. Believing the promise maker. You know, the most emphatic way, visual way that I can show you why this passage is all about promises is by showing you the whole passage on one screen so you can see how many times the word will is used. Or if you have an ESV Bible, it says shall. 25 times in 10 verses. 25 times in 10 verses. This this is a word of accomplishment. And so I want to just read, I'm not going to read all of them right now, but I want to just read a few of them so that we hear all of the things God is promising that he's going to do. Listen, verse one, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. Verse two, it will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. Go down to verse five. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for water will gush into the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. Go down to verse 10. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and will come to Zion with singing crowned with unending joy. You know, if you were to summarize all of the promises being made in this passage, it would be this. It's this next underline for you or the next thing to fill in. Everything wrong will be made right and God's people will safely and finally be with him forever. Everything wrong will be made right and God's people will safely and finally be with him forever. Now, if you haven't lived very long, or if life for you, for some reason, has been relatively easy, then you might hear that kind of promise and it might not move the needle for you that much. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, there could not be a more precious promise. Just think about some of the things that he's saying here. One day soon, everything is going to work like it was supposed to. The factory default button that none of us could ever switch over is finally going to be switched. Creation and people operating like they were intended to from the beginning. And what's that going to mean? Look again what it says, verse 1 and 2. Look down at your Bible. The wilderness will be glad. The desert will blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly. So let me ask you this question. Is God just really into gardening and desert irrigation? No. It's a metaphor, right? What's, a, what's it a metaphor for? He's saying this. He's saying that all of the places where you see death and decay right now will, by God's power, by his grace, one day become places where you see health and happiness. Health and happiness. And just think about that a, a, a little bit. Some of the places where there are right now sorrow, sickness, sadness. It's going to come to an end. Justice won't ever be held back from anyone ever again. Joys that seem to dissolve like cotton candy are going to finally be permanent, right? And don't you just long for a day like that, don't you? There's so many places in our lives, if all of us were asked to maybe write down a list of places where we see death and decay, where there should be health and happiness, we could go on for a very long time. I read a book uh, earlier this year about a girl whose mom had this burning desire for her to get into show business. And so this mom did everything she could to make sure that happened for her daughter. And so she drove her family into just the breaking point. She drove her daughter into uh, having a depression, a deep depression, an eating disorder, broke her family apart just so that she could see her daughter get into TV and movies. Family, a place where there should be a lot of health and happiness was a place of death. Or think about earlier, uh, a few years ago, the, the Houston Chronicle report February of 2019, this published report about widespread sexual abuse happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, our, our convention. 380 staff and volunteers working at different churches who were accused of abusing over 700 victims, either abusing or covering up. 700 victims from 1998 until the present time. 
You know, anytime sexual abuse happens, it's evil and it's criminal. But when it happens in, the, in a church setting, a place where there should be health and trust, it's so much more wicked and awful, right? You and I, I said this a minute ago, we could make a very long list of all of these places where we see death and decay, where there should be health and happiness. And this is what's so remarkable about these promises that God's saying, I have the power in a moment to undo all of that. I can and I will undo all of it. But here's a question for us that I want us to consider. Is the promise of health, joy, happiness, is it all just in the distant future? Is it all just one day I will do that permanently? Or is any of it to be uh, embraced, felt right now? I want us to think about the way that Jesus answers that question in John 11. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to talk about it for a moment. You might even want to write it down, go back and listen to it, because it's a profound thing that Jesus tells us about how we are experiencing life right now. Think about this. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He was away in another town doing ministry somewhere and word got to him through Martha that Lazarus, who he loved, was sick. He was going to die. And so he sa they said, come back, come back soon. You need to be here. You need to help. But Jesus does something very curious. He waits two more days where he was and then he comes to the town. And so when he gets to the town, what happens? Martha's there and she runs out to him. Lazarus is dead. And you can almost imagine her kind of pointing her finger at Jesus, crying, saying, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So what does Jesus say back? Tenderly, he says back to her, your brother will rise again. But then Martha gives back this sturdy, theological answer. What does she say? I know my brother will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. But listen to what Jesus says back to her. I'm going to read this for us in a moment. And I want us to think about how Jesus doesn't want her to only have an academic belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants her to believe that he can bring new life right now. Listen to what it says. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You know, Jesus healed a lot of blind people who eventually died. He healed a lot of lame people who eventually died. Even Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, right? Eventually died again. You know, the point of the miracles was never to, to be to show that Jesus could do this, this miracle. The point of the miracle was always to show that Jesus has the power to bring healing and life. Wherever he goes, there's healing and life. Which means every Christian has this wonderful promise to hold on to. Physical resurrection one day, but listen to this, Christian spiritual resurrection right now. So the answer to the question I asked us just a moment ago is this, yes. If you are in Christ, then new life 
is growing in you right now, like good seed in a soil, good seed in a good soil. It might not be happening at the rate you want and the way you want, but it's happening. So hold on to that and believe in that. Number two, I want us to see this. The path of salvation is hope and holiness. The path of salvation is hope and holiness. So here's a question. What are we going to need to hold on to these promises that God's given us? We're going to need hope and we're going to need holiness. Look down at your Bibles again, verse three and four. It's up on the screens as well. It says this, strengthen the weak knees, steady the shaky knees, hands, steady the shaky knees, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. I'm gonna ask you this question. Why do you think there are verses about hope around all of these verses about promises. Well, if I could continue the house illustration just a a little bit longer, it would be because of this. Because when we walk into a house and smell cat pee, we get really discouraged, right? Now, I promise I will not say the phrase cat pee anymore, okay? (laughs) The analogy is over. I know that none of you woke up wondering how many times you would hear the phrase cat pee today, all right? That's what happens though, isn't it? We all get really discouraged. God knows this about us too. Think about what it says in Psalm 103. He knows our frame. So what does he know about us? Look down at your Bibles, verse four. He knows we're cowardly, right? That's the description of us, cowardly. He knows that when trouble is near, even the greatest promises can seem flimsy and uncertain. He knows that we need the encouragement of this to strengthen our hope. I wonder if you've ever heard this saying before, that worldly hope is certainty about time, but uncertainty about an event. But Christian hope is uncertainty about time, but certainty about an event. I'm going to say that again. I know it's a lot to take in. Think about this, okay? Worldly hope is certainty about time, but uncertainty about an event. So it might go something like this. I hope tomorrow will be fun. I hope my freshman year will go well. I hope it won't rain on our vacation. I hope this sermon ends when it's supposed to, right? <laughs> what, what is certain in that? What's certain is the time. I, they, they believe the time. There's not a certainty about an event. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I just know I'm going to get there, right? Christian hope is, is the exact opposite. Christian hope says this, it's an uncertainty about time, but it's a certainty about the event. One day we will be with the Lord. God will conform you into the image of his son, Jesus. Think about what he says to childless Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. Friends, when God wants to breathe, fresh hope into your heart. He tells you about the certainty of what he will do. He might not tell you all of the, he might not tell you the time, you might not know the time, but he fills us up up with the certainty of what he will do. So Christian, hold on to that. 
I also want us to look at what that we believe in is going to happen. Look at what it says in verse four. This is important. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Do you ever feel like Satan just has complete reign, free reign in your life? Like there's just swirling dysfunction in your life, unending uh, temptation in your life. There's a diagnosis There's darkness, there's depression happening in your life. And sometimes it's even worse when it's happening to somebody that you love, but you can't actually help. It's happening in their life. You can't do anything about it. And do you ever say in in, in one of those moments, God, why aren't you avenging Satan? Why aren't you doing anything about his wicked plans? If you've ever been there, If you're there right now, I want you to listen to what it says, what we just read a moment ago. He will save you. He will save you. You don't have certainty about when, but you have absolute certainty that he will. So Christian friend, hold on to that hope. I want us to see another thing about this and it's about the primary way that the kind of hope that we're talking about gets into your heart. How does it get into your heart every single day? And it's this, hearing the word is how we hold on to hope. It's the next fill in the blank for you. Hearing the word is how we hold on to hope. I want you to notice something that he says in verse number three. It says this, say something to the cowardly. Just think about that. It doesn't say show something to the cowardly. It says say something to the cowardly. Also look at verse four, it says, here is your God. Look down at that, here is your God. You know, another way to translate that phrase right there would be this, behold your God. You know, if you were to reverse engineer Christian hope, at the center of it, you would see something like this. You would see this phrase, beholding God by listening to his word is how we have Christian hope. Beholding God by listening to his word is how you have Christian hope. Some of us might think that what we need most is a fresh word or a fresh feeling or or some kind of worship joy bomb to kind of go off in your heart every single day. But you know what we need most? What you need most is to clearly see God in his word every single day. It's a little bit like having LASIK surgery for your eyes of faith (laughs) every day. You get better vision every single day. And as you clearly see God, you are able to hold on more strongly and believe his promises. Those two things are always going to be connected. But I want us to see one other thing before we keep going. And it's this, the defining characteristic of those who walk on this path is holiness. The defining characteristic of those who walk on this path is holiness. Look at verse eight in your Bible. It's gonna be on the screen as well. A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way and the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. You know, I think there's two ways that you could think about holiness in this passage here, okay? One of them is that either it's a prerequisite for people walking on the path or it's a defining characteristic 
of the people walking on this path. So first, prerequisite. If you believe holiness is a prerequisite for people walking on this path, then you better get working. You better start shaping up your life right now. Before you can walk on this path, hold on to these promises, hold on to Jesus. You need to be holy. But my guess is that if you've tried to live in that way for very long, then you realize you can't do that at all. Or if by some miracle you've been able to fool everybody around you that you're like this super holy people, a person rather, you know what's really happening still in your heart, even if it's not on the outside. You know you still struggle with lust. You know you still struggle with bitterness and angry. So the other one, if it's a defining characteristic of those who walk on this path, then we know it had to come from somewhere other than themselves. And that is a description of the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that. And friends, listen, the gospel isn't just Jesus took my sins away. Jesus paid for all of my sin on the cross. The gospel is also that Jesus gave us his righteousness. You are positionally, if you're in Christ, you are positionally holy in Christ right now. It's like a, a verdict from a judge in a courtroom. You are holy. But also you have been empowered by the Spirit to live a life of righteousness. You, you have the calling and the capacity to walk on the, the path of holiness now, I just want you to think about this for a minute, though. If, if you are not a Christian, you're here today, we're so thankful you've joined us. You, you maybe came on Easter and you want to keep checking out what we're talking about, Jesus, seeing him all over the Bible. I want you to consider the sobering words that we just talked about from Isaiah 35. Only those made clean by the blood of Jesus can walk on this path. The certainty of this hope to hold on to only comes through Christ. One last thing I want us to see about this in this section is why hope and holiness are connected. Look at that. Hope and holiness are connected in this passage. I wonder if you've ever thought about your sin in this way, that when you sin, it's actually a display of your hopelessness. When you sin, it's a display of your hopelessness. When you look at pornography, you have hopelessness that God can really satisfy you. You're hopeless that the joy of the Lord will actually be enjoyable. When you lie or you cover up some, something, you're hopeless that the, the, the future you envision for yourself can't be obtained if the truth were to come out. So you hide it. If you, when you get drunk or high, you're hopeless that unless you deaden some voice or feeling on the inside, that you can't have peace or joy. Friends, if you're in Christ, I, I hope that you hear this. You have access to the kind of hope that can displace hopeless unholiness. You have access, Christian hope can give you the access to displace hopeless unholiness. 
So we've looked at the promise of salvation, the path of salvation, but now number three, the sound of salvation is joy and singing. The sound of salvation is joy and singing. You know, something that sticks out in this chapter is the response of worship over and over again to the Lord's salvation. You probably even picked that up as I was reading it earlier. Go back, look, to, look down at your Bible, verse one and verse two. What are the wilderness and the desert doing? They're glad, they're singing, they're full of joy. Look at verse six, what happens when the mute is healed? Immediately, start singing. What are the ransom doing in, as they're going to Zion at the end of the chapter? They're singing. They have unending joy, like it says there. So this tells us something uh, that we really need to see here. It's the next fill in the blank. Christian singing in worship is reflexive. Christian singing in worship is reflexive. It's a reflex. When Christians see the Lord clearly, they don't need much of a prompt. They just start singing. <laughs> I wonder if any of you have a, a, a reflex that you know is a little weird about you. Like maybe like that fight or flight. Have you ever heard of that fight or flight reflex? Like maybe if somebody scares you, you punch them in the face and you're like, I, don't, I didn't mean to, but you shouldn't have scared me. It's your fault, kind of, you know. What, what's a reflex? A reflex is something that's baked in. You don't think about it. You, it just happens. I, I want to pause for just a moment at, at this point. And as your worship pastor, I just want to say a couple of things. I'm so thankful that it takes very little prompting to get all of you singing every single week. I have seen this reflex of worship in all of you for the last seven years, and I just could not be more thankful. One of my favorite quotes uh, on this subject is by a guy named Harold Best. He says this, that mature Christians are easily edified. And, and, and you, that's what you are, Brook Hills. You're just easily edified. You sing loudly, you sing quickly. You sing joyfully every single week. And as your worship pastor, I just couldn't be more thankful to be the one who gets to lead you in worship every single week. So praise God for, for all of you. I want us to see one other thing though, that Christian singing is also a declaration. It's also a declaration. It's a testimony about something. And I want us to think about what is it declaring? What's it saying? What's the testimony? It's declaring this. You might even want to write this down. It's declaring who and whose we are. W-H-O-S-E. Who and whose we are. That's what it declares. I want us to think for, for a minute about some of the things that we know about the, uh, the, the ransomed and redeemed. We've been looking at them all morning long. Look at what it says in verse 9. The redeemed will walk on it. The ransomed of the Lord will return and they're gonna to come to Zion with singing. So think about this. What do we know about this group of people? Well, look at, look at verse eight. Go to verse eight. We know that they are not the unclean. By God's grace, they are not the unclean. We know that they're not the fools who, walk, who won't get on this path. They, are, they aren't the ones that have been rejected by the Lord. But now go to verse five and six. Look at this. What do we know about them? They are the blind who needed the miracle of their eyes being opened, right? They are the deaf who needed the miracle of hearing to happen. So what's that telling us? You might even want to write this down. To be redeemed, to be ransomed is to have a miracle done to you. 
It's to have a miracle done to you. If you're in Christ, there's been a miracle that's happened. It's happened to you in Christ. And Christian, this miracle is the miracle of salvation. We needed to be redeemed. We needed to be ransomed. We had to be bought back from sin and Satan. And that's what God did through Christ, the blood of the cross. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2. This is such a one. This is the kind of verse that is worth memorizing. Write it down. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. We sing so many songs from this verse. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by what? Nailing it to the cross. So now when you sing, it's a declaration of truth and freedom. You're singing every single week. It's a declaration, it's a testimony of truth and freedom. And listen, even if Satan, when you gather here, even if Satan whispers and says, you're not living like a Christian. You're not living like you are in Christ. I wanna encourage you to keep singing. Keep remembering, remember, declare what's true. Some of you know about this part of the country. We actually all know a lot more about this part of the country now. Just to the west of Russia, north and west of Russia, there are three countries referred to as the Baltic states. It's uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And, uh, And back during World War II, Uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, invaded this area, the Baltic states, and they took them over, they occupied them, and they stayed that way. They occupied them for the full reign, the 50-year reign of the Soviet Union. And so during that time, uh, Russian became the national language for all of these different countries. It became uh, illegal to own a flag from one of these former countries. If they found that you had a flag, they would ship you off to Siberia. The Soviet Union was trying to eradicate any kind of national pride that uh, they they might have. But the, the Russians, they made a really big mistake. They allowed Estonia to continue a song festival that they had for years and years. They allowed them to continue having this song festival in Estonia. And on June 10th, 1988, this gathering song festival happened one more time. And when all the people gathered together, there were about 10,000 of them, all of them started singing this song that was the unofficial national anthem for Estonia. It was a song that the Soviet Union tried to eradicate years ago, back in 1947, but the people held on to this song. They held on to this song, and that day, June 10th, 1988, they started singing it together. And over the next three days, this crowd of people started as 10,000, grew to 100,000 people, and they kept singing. They kept holding on to this song about their freedom and about their independence. And what happened was Russia found out what was going on and they sent soldiers in. They tried to stop them from singing. And it was what happened was amazing that the people of Estonia just kept singing more and more. They kept singing 
So much so that this, uh, this event has now been called the bloodless revolution. You probably have heard of it. Or the singing revolution. Because not one life was taken during this protest of singing. And just four months later, Estonia gained their freedom again. Good to see they you They were all. not occupied anymore by the Soviet Union. And I want you just to think about this. If your identity in Christ seems in your eyes to be flimsy or uncertain, I want to encourage you to sing your way back into your freedom. Sing your way back into remembering what is true. Declare it. One last thing I want us to see, but I'm not going to give you the fill in the blank because I know you'll put your Bibles away, okay? And so I want you, I know what you're like. I'm like that too, okay? I know you. I want to just take one moment before I give you this fill in the blank to describe something that all of us probably have felt as we come into a time of singing. I wonder if you've ever walked into a time of, of worship, it may, maybe even happened today. You walk in here and you sit down and you want to focus on the Lord. You want to focus on God and what he's doing and the words and the word but something happens. And all of a sudden, a, a way that you have sinned in the past, or maybe it's even this week, comes up and it's just front and center. Or maybe it's a way that you have been sinned against. All of a sudden, it's right there. Maybe it's a divorce, or a diagnosis, or a depression, or a darkness. Something. All of a sudden, it's right there. And so what you want to do is you want to engage, but you, you feel like, I can't do that. And all of a sudden, that thing is coloring your time of worship, and it's keeping you from engaging. If you look at the final verse in this chapter, I think there is hope for all of us who have had this happen before. Look at what it says in the final verse. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. Commentators say that one of the ways that you can actually translate this final verse is to say this, that they will overtake joy and gladness. The redeemed and the ransom are actually the ones overtaking joy and gladness. So think about that. The thing that has evaded the redeemed and the ransom for their whole life, the thing that they could never take hold of, you come into worship and I can't ever get it. It's always slipping away. The thing that they always wanted but could never grab, one day will be theirs. They will overtake it. But then also look at that. The thing that has pestered them, nagged them, sorrow and sighing, it's gone forever. So here's the final fill in the blank for all of us. Christian singing and worship will be unobstructed. Christian singing and worship one day will be unobstructed. One day we will have unending joy, fully engaged hearts, singing with no shadow of heartbreak at all. Don't you look forward to that day? Amen.
Amen.